The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. City of Angels Investigations, lost or stolen property, our specialty. You dropped it, we'll spot it. He cheats, we'll peek. Little one gone, we'll find him before dawn. No job is too big, no job is too small. We're here to please one and all. We're licensed by the state of California and happily accept all major credit cards. How can I help you? Sorry, you already subscribe. Welcome everyone, it is Thursday, April 27th, 2017. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. There's a lot of anxiety and concern being expressed certainly in the popular media, about the economic state of the nation, of the province, of the state, of the city. You know, after decades of government growth and intervention in what was once a much more free economy, the poverty that has inevitably resulted from so many of these policies has now become the subject of the next political problem to solve. And despite political claims of progress, we seem to be entering an age of poverty. I mean, these are the messages we get from our politicians all around us, despite all the good they tell us that they're doing. And and I think in a sense that Canada has never experienced before. We we see it from our Aboriginal reserves to downtown London, Ontario. More and more people are coming to realize that poverty may well become the nation's number one problem. Now, the same politicians and social engineers who are responsible for the bulk of the problem are now proposing solutions in the form of poverty panels, a guaranteed minimum income, and all sorts of other Rob Peter to pay Paul schemes that have never been able to quote-unquote solve poverty. It's not an issue to be solved. By trying to solve poverty, you'll be guaranteed to create more of it. Societies, you know, free societies, must deal with poverty, not try to solve it. And not by taking wasteful, preventative approaches by giving everybody some kind of basic minimum income as if that will make the problem go away permanently. Oh, what a state we are in, and it seems to be coming as a state of distress. And that's the theme of our show today, complete with the double entendre intended. But before we begin, don't forget, you can and you should write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Subscribe to Just Right on iTunes. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, all of our past broadcasts. To address our theme about the state we're in, I thought we'd open up with a commentary penned by Terence Corcoran. About a year and a half ago in the October 2015 Financial Post magazine, speaking to a philosophical trend occurring in the Western nations, the headline phrased as a question read, The Entrepreneurial State? And I will quote, this is from Terence Corcoran of October 2015, Enter two new faces from the United Kingdom. Paul Mason, British journalist and economics editor at a British TV network, and Mariana Mazzucato, both of whom have new books about to hit North America that have fresh claims that what the world needs now is a big wallop of state intervention. 
Mason's book, Post-Capitalism, A Guide to Our Future, proclaims the end of capitalism has begun. Writes Mason, over the last 25 years, it has been the left's project that has collapsed. The market destroyed the left's plan. Individualism replaced collectivism and solidarity. He believes that capitalism, instead of being crushed by a rising proletariat, will be destroyed from within via the miracle of information technology, the emergence of the sharing economy, and a lot of government intervention. There's no space here to elaborate on Mason's utopianism without getting lost. I call it Project Zero because its aims are a zero-carbon energy system, the production of machines, products and services with zero marginal costs, and the reduction of work times as close as possible to zero, Mason writes. A far more weighty contribution to the business of bashing liberal capitalism is the entrepreneurial state, debunking public versus private sector myths by University of Sussex economist Mariana Mazzucato. She says her book raises issues that are urgent in the context of the 2016 presidential election. The United States desperately needs politicians with the courage to swim against the tide of popular rhetoric and outline a bolder vision for the state's dynamic role in fostering the economic growth of the future, she says. The same goes for Canada, where Mazzucato has a following. She appeared in January at the Broadbent Institute event in Toronto. Liberal MP Christia Freeland is a fan. The Mazzucato thesis is that free market ideology misrepresents economic history. Her book, she says, is an open call to change the way we talk about the state and its role in the economy. Not surprisingly, she calls for a massive state role to promote green technology, fight climate change, and end inequality. Sound familiar? End quote. Well, it certainly sounds totalitarian and ty tyrannical. I wonder if she got her ideal candidate with the election of Donald Trump. <laughs> you know, it's a simple black and white matter of definition that when the state takes a role in the economy, capitalism ceases to exist. Capitalism means no state intervention in the setting of prices and the determination of who buys what from whom. It, under capitalism, the government is the referee and not a player. Now, business and capitalists will always exist under any system, at least the, you know, where they're permitted and or controlled by the state. And they'll be, they'll be able to carry on, but grossly inefficiently. And if allowed to continue long enough, well, you know, a lot of people are familiar with the old Russians saying, you know, they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. And of course, under that kind of environment, production drops. Wealth plummets. So... If that's a picture of our future state of affairs, times are going to get tough. Yes, it's a tough competitive world out there, and for many people, that in itself is a problem that needs to be fixed somehow. <laughs> the province of Ontario is now conducting a guaranteed income, no-strings-attached program in selected urban, air, urban centers, one being Hamilton. In an effort to deal with some kind of problem, I have yet to hear clearly defined, and it's, I guess it's poverty, but they're giving everyone a min minimum income. Politics and economics are so intertwined that it's almost impossible to discuss each of those disciplines as a separate subject. That is a problem that needs fixing, and that is possible to fix relatively easily. But until that fix has been made, we have all been consigned to the realm of state planning and centralized control and a lot less wealth relative to the population. 
you know, I, I think about it a lot, and if you, you look at the big picture, humanity's problems and challenges are really more political than economic. And by that I mean the political environment is higher on the hierarchical scale of importance when it comes to the economic well-being and security of nations, and of course of individuals. From his book, Wealth, Poverty, and Politics, an International Perspective, written in 2015, Thomas Sowell, who actually we'll be hearing from later in today's show, wrote a very interesting excerpt that I've got here, and I quote, To ask why nations fail is to treat our conception of success as a norm, rather than the rare exception that it is in the, in the long history of human beings. It may be an understandable human tendency for us to regard whatever we happen to be used to immediately around us as usual or natural, but that does not make it so. In pre-Civil War America, slavery was referred to as a peculiar institution because slavery was so inconsistent with the principles and policies and practices in the rest of the American society. But the tragic fact is that slavery was a pervasive institution among innumerable peoples around the world for thousands of years. It is freedom for ordinary people that has been a peculiar institution of relatively recent vintage as history is measured, and still in jeopardy in many countries, even today as being utterly suppressed in some other countries. The real challenge in discussing wealth, poverty, and politics is to try to understand what peculiar combination of circumstances has resulted in the level of prosperity found in such places as, as Japan and Western Europe and in such offshoot nations of Western Europe as the United States or Australia. Poverty occurs automatically. It is wealth that must be produced and must be explained. The attempt to treat poverty as a discrete problem, one that can be solved by an expansion of the welfare state, as in the American War on Poverty launched in the 1960s, has had social repercussions that should be very sobering. End quote. Now this reflects a view of my own that I often share when discussing efforts to eliminate poverty. We shouldn't be studying or talking about poverty, but about producing wealth. That's a prerequisite. Understanding how that wealth comes to be produced is not necessarily a pretty picture, nor a comfortable subject when you look at it from a personal challenge point of view. You know, we're so often focused on the big picture and the, and the big picture only when we assess and judge the success or failure of a given economy or of a particular country or jurisdiction that sometimes we miss the whole point of the discussion. You know, all the, you know, they talk about supply and demand, competitive advantage, exchange rates, stock prices, taxes, jobs, job losses. Yeah, you know, okay. But how, how does the economy look closer to the surface where all of the real work by real people actually takes place? This, of course, was one of the running themes in Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, where by means of a story, Ayn Rand could illustrate the principles and forces at play in the personal, economic, and political relationships among human beings. Now, I discovered a similar way of looking at it or perspective about the realities of production and work and effort online recently. So explaining the nuances of the marketplace and economics, we'll be hearing the voice of University of Toronto's Jordan Peterson momentarily, who will be talking about motivation, creativity, and production at the human down-to-earth ex experiential level, if you will, speaking to a group of students. Now, not to be confused with the law of supply and demand. It's called Price's Law, and it's not about prices. 
It's about the 1% that we keep hearing about from social justice warriors and the like. As Professor Peterson explains in his YouTube presentation of April 21st, Price's law is based on the work of a gentleman named DeSola Price while studying scientific productivity during the 1960s. Price's law. Here's Price's law. This is something to hammer into your heart. The square root of the number of people in a domain do 50% of the work. Okay, so let's, let's go through that. You have 10 employees. Three of them do half the work. Makes sense. That's reasonable. You have 100 employees. 10 of them do half the work. That's a problem. So the other 90% are doing the other half. Who cares about them? You have 10,000 employees. 100 of them do half the work. Right, so here's a, here's a nasty little law. As your company grows, incompetence grows in, in, exponentially and competence grows linearly. And if you were graphing the distribution, let's say you graphed how many people in a population of 300 had $10,000 in a savings account. It would look very much like this. Most people would have like no savings whatsoever. The median person would have no savings whatsoever. And then you go up here where the 1% is, they have all the money. But the thing you want to understand about that 1% issue that you always hear about is that it applies in every single realm where there's difference in creative production. Every realm. Doesn't matter. Number of records produced, number of records sold, number of compositions written. So it applies to all sorts of things, like number of hockey goals scored is also distributed this way. Number of basketball, basketball, basketballs successfully put through the hoop follows the same distribution. Uh, size of cities follows the same distribution. It's a weird, it's a weird law, and you, you can think about it in part, uh, why does this happen? Well, imagine what happens when you play Monopoly. What happens? Everybody has the same amount of money to begin with, right? So then you start playing. It's basically a random game. Well, some people start to win a bit, and some people start to lose a bit. And then if you win, the probability that you'll keep winning starts to increase. And if you lose, your vulnerability increases as you lose. And then maybe you've got, say, six people playing Monopoly. Soon one person has zero. What happens when they have zero? They're out of the game. So then if you keep playing, people start to stack up at zero, right? What happens at the end of the game? One person has all the property and all the money, and everyone else has none. Right, that, that's what happens if you play an iterated trading game to its final conclusion. And that's part of the, the law, in a sense, that's underlying this kind of distribution. So it's, a, it's really, it's, it's, it's not a consequence necessarily of structural inequality. It's built into the system at a deeper level than that. So, you know, people talk about all the time about how unfair it is that 1% of the population has the vast amount of the money, and 1% of the 1% has most of that money, and 1% of the 1% of the 1% has most of that money. But it is a, a, it's, a, it's an inevitable conclusion of iterated trading games, and we don't know how to fight it. We don't know how to take from the people who have and move it to the bottom without it instantly moving back up to the top. Different people, maybe, but still back up to the top. Because even the 1% churns a lot. Like I think you have a 10% chance, if I remember correctly, you have a 10% chance of being in the top 1% for at least one year of your life, and a 40% chance of being in the top 10% for at least one year in your life. That's in Canada and the US. It's less so in Europe. So there's a fair bit of churning at the top end. It's not the same people all the time who have the money, but it is a tiny fraction of the people all the time who have all the money.
Um, you know, you hear very frequently people say things like everyone's creative. It's like, that's wrong, okay? It's wrong. It's just as wrong as saying that everyone's extroverted. First of all, you have to be pretty damn smart to be creative because otherwise you're just going to get to where other people have already got and that's not creative by definition. So, so being fast and being out there at the front of things really makes a difference. And then you also have to have these divergent thinking capabilities and that's part of your trait structure. And creative people are really different than non-creative people. You know, partly because, for example, they're highly motivated to do creative things and to experience novelty and to, and, to, and to chase down aesthetic experiences and to attend movies and to read fiction and to go to museums and to enjoy poetry and, and, and to enjoy music that's not conventional music, for example. These aren't trivial differences. And so, and so it's, a real, it's a real misstatement to make the proposition that everyone's creative. It's just simply not the case. It's a matter of wishful thinking. Don't be thinking that creativity is such a good thing. It's a high-risk, high-return strategy. So if you're creative, you just try this. There's creative people in this room, man. You guys are going to have a hell of a time monetizing your creativity. It's virtually impossible. It's really, really difficult because, first of all, let's say you make an original product. You think the world will beat a pathway to your door if you build a better mousetrap. It's like, that's complete rubbish. It isn't, it isn't true in the least. If you make a good creative product, you've probably solved about 5% of your problem. Because then you have marketing, which is insanely difficult, and then you have sales, and then you have customer support, and then you have to build an organization. And you have to, if it's really novel, you have to tell people what the hell the thing is. You know, we built this future authoring program, right? And we, it's, it's available for people online. So how do you market that? No one knows what that is, and that's a real problem. If you write a book, well, then you have the problem that another million people have also written a book. But if you produce something that's completely new and doesn't have a category, people can't search for it online. How are they going to find it? So you, you just have, and then you have pricing problems, and it's really unbelievably difficult to produce something creative and then monetize it. And even worse, if you're the creative person, let's say you have a spectacular invention. You've got no money, right? You've got no customers. Th those are big problems. And so maybe you go and you find a venture capitalist. We start with family and friends, because that's how it works. You raise money for your product. You raise money from your family and friends. That's assuming you have family and friends that have some money and that they're going to give it to you. And most people aren't in that situation. So it's a terrible barrier right off the bat. And then, of course, you're putting your family and friends at substantial financial risk, because the probability that your stupid idea is going to make money is virtually zero, even if it's a really brilliant idea. You know, so the overwhelming probability is that you will fail. But a small proportion of creative people succeed spectacularly. And so it's like a lottery in some sense. You're probably going to lose. But if you don't lose, you could win big. And that keeps a lot of creative people going. But also, they don't really have much choice in it. Because if you're a creative person, you're like a, a, a fruit tree that's, that's bearing fruit. So you don't really have, you can suppress it, but it's very bad for you. You know, the creative people I've worked with is if they're not creative, they're miserable, so they have to do it. But, and, and you know, there's real joy and, and pleasure in it and, 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 and psychological utility. And, you know, whenever I talk to people who are creative, and you, you guys should listen to this because I know what I'm talking about. If you happen to be creative, if you're a songwriter or another kind of musician or an artist or, or, or any of the other number of things that you might be, find a way to make money. And then practice your craft on the side, because you'll starve to death otherwise. Now, some, for some of you, that won't be true, but it's a tiny minority.
Well, I guess you could always apply for government grants and funding. <laughs> you know, I'm just looking at some of the headlines. I've got some newspaper clippings here. Just let's look at some of these these headlines. Bracing for the new or the next economic shock. Lower potential growth, challenging new reality. Survey: Canadians just $200 shy of being overwhelmed by debt. Canadians' red ink spills to record levels. I, I've got I've got drawers full of these clippings, and Politicians are always trying to solve these problems, and they're often at the root of them. You know, I can solve Paul's financial shortfall by robbing Peter of a portion of his earnings to give to Paul. So in solving Paul's problem, I've created a problem for Peter, an obligation to provide funds for Paul. But have I really solved anything? Because in the long term, I haven't even really made a trade-off. It'll only appear that way as long as Peter is in a position to continue honoring his obligation, an obligation that Peter himself did not undertake of his own accord or as a consequence of his own actions, like in the game of Monopoly. <laughs> now, I was, I was listening to Peterson talking about, you know, Monopoly as, as a fixed, fixed game, and it's a fi- but Monopoly operates on a fixed pie theory. Your moves are determined by a pair of dice, not by your own chosen path around the board. If you could do that, you'd win every game. But while the 1% phenomenon is an observable and measurable one, it is, it's an illusionary statistic that causes people to draw incorrect conclusions about why some people are rich and others are poor, because it's not a fixed sum game. And this comes down to what we talked about on the show before, the successful failures of capitalism. Capitalism, remember, is not just a profit system, it's a profit and loss system. And that same quote-unquote churning phenomenon that Peterson described that goes on within the top 1% of any given group also applies to those who have, you know, lost making a go of it in the marketplace, people in the middle, the middle class, the lower ends, and they can always pick up and do something else at which they might be phenomenally successful having failed at whatever it was they failed at. Every failure is a lesson on the road to success. So we can't look at failure as a, as a closed-end situation. That's part of capitalism's secret. You know, we, we don't know how to take from the people who have the money to the bottom without instantly moving back to the top, says Peterson. But he's only talking about a statistic. By his own description, and it applies across all economic classes, if you will, all these statistics represent an ever-changing of the players in the game, at whatever level they're playing at. So the process of taking from the people who have money to the bottom without instantly moving to the top represents kind of a false view of what's really happening perpetually in a freely operating market. Now, of course, Peterson recognizes that. One of the things that disturbs me is this use. We're always talking about how we're going to use, how, how we're going to distribute the wealth. I almost think we have to stop using the term distribution and redistribution separately from the word production. Those two things go hand in hand. Production and distribution are part and parcel of the same process. Without distribution, production ceases. And without production, there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing to distribute. So confining oneself to using the word distribution is kind of a moral evasion, isn't it? If you really stop to think about it. It, it willfully blinds you to the necessity of producing something before it can be pro- distributed. It assumes that all of the world's wealth, food, housing, goods, etc., are somehow part of nature. 
you know, like free fruit falling from the trees that merely have to be distributed. If nature did all our producing for us, that would indeed be the case, but it just ain't so. However, this is how socialists view production. It's a given, and you can see it in everything they said, including the things that Terence Corcoran was, was talking about. There's no sense of the process that's necessary to understand what makes production possible. This is what made Atlas Shrugged such a great, great, great novel. One of Jordan Peterson's presentations I saw that we didn't have room to squeeze into the show today concerned the issue of intelligence tests, like IQ measurements being used to determine an individual's suitability or ability to perform tasks, you know, from routine repetitive tasks to complex tasks requiring creativity and leadership. He expressed concern about those with the lowest IQs finding themselves increasingly unable to survive in an economy that is becoming more high-tech and more demanding of people's ability to perform and function user, using higher abstract thinking, and people have to become more independent in the future. Now, this could be part of the kind of analysis that leads to things like guaranteed minimum income programs and the like, which is the wrong response to that situation. And while a lack of intelligence is problematic at a given point in time, I'm not too sure that the condition is necessarily permanent. And, and amazingly, again, from Thomas Sowell's book, Wealth, Poverty, and Politics, he addresses this very issue in a historical way. And under the, uh, on page 106 of his book, there's a, there's a part called Mental Capabilities. And he writes, and I quote, There is a vast, complex, and inconclusive literature on the mental potential of different racial groups. But the practical question for anyone investigating current economic disparities between individuals or groups is not what their mental potential was at birth, but what human capital they developed as they grew up and can bring with them as adults to a job or a college or to the creation of a business or a scientific endeavor. Such developed capabilities have obviously varied enormously not only among racial or ethnic groups, but also among people living in major urban centers as compared to people living in isolated mountain villages or other isolated or otherwise unpromising locations. Nor is this a new phenomenon of modern times. As previously noted, the Greeks were far more advanced than the British thousands of years ago. In the days of the Roman Empire, Cicero warned his fellow Romans against buying British slaves, since they were so hard to teach. <laughs> Given the vast cultural gulf between the illiterate tribal Britons of the era and the complex and sophisticated society of ancient Rome, it is hard to imagine how things could have been otherwise. With the advantage of centuries of historical hindsight, we can recognize today that this disparity in human capital was not permanent, which is not to, not to deny that it was present and consequential at the time, end quote. Then, of course, there are the people who are more than capable of doing a particular job and to devote their entire time and life to that job, while there are others more than capable of doing a particular job who choose not to do it. Their women are very good in high school, then they go to college, they're very good in college. They nail their damn grades, they do their studying, they get their A's and they, and they ace their LSATs so they're smart too. Then they go off to do their articling and they're really, really good at it. And then they get offered an associate position and they're really, really good at it. And then by the time they're 30 they make partner and let's say they're in high pressure, high paying jobs. $250,000 a year, $300,000 a year, $500 an hour. Okay, what's your life like? 
you work all the time, period. 70 hours a week, 75 hours a week, flat out, and you don't get to make any mistakes. And you can say all you want about the fact that women have a difficult time with that because it's a male-dominant patriarchy. Any, any female lawyer who's hit 30 and is a partner that has any sense at all knows that's complete bloody rubbish. It's market-determined right to the core. What happens to the women when they're in their 30s? They all leave the high-end law firms. Why? Because who in their right mind would want to live like that? That's the issue, right? Once you make about $60,000 a year, for your family, but let's say for you personally, additional income makes zero, has zero impact on your quality of life. Zero. So why work 80 hours a week? Well, men will do it, some men, very few. A handful of hyper-competitive men who are obsessed with hitting the pinnacle of the given dominance hierarchy they're in will happily work 80 hours a week and they'll forego everything else, relationships, family, children, way in the second category. It's like an obsession, and that's the sort of people who run things. Those are the people who run things. Well, they're often also disagreeable, too, because you want to, you want to manage people? Really? They're not going to like you. You know, and it's not an easy thing to not be liked. And actually, if you're an agreeable person, and women are more agreeable than men, it's quite painful to be disliked. But if you're in a managerial and executive position, the probability that people are going to like you is quite low. Now, if you're a real son of a bitch, then they're going to dislike you more. So the women hit that at 30, and they're completely qualified, and the law firms are bloody desperate to keep them. Because it's really hard to find highly qualified people. Especially once you've put all that time into training them, especially if they're also good at bringing in business. The law firms trip over themselves to try to keep them. They can't. The women think, why in the world am I doing this? Why in the world would anyone in their right mind do this? Especially because they're often married by that point, too. And generally, they've married a husband who makes as much money or more than them. So they don't need the damn money. And so they think, well, there's more to life than this, which is exactly the right thing to think. And so then they go and find a job that's nine to five and controllable so that they can hire a nanny and have some kids and have a life. And it's like, yes, that's the intelligent thing to do. So we've got things backwards in our culture. We're thinking, at least in part, why aren't there more women in positions of power? Wrong question. The right question is, why are there any men at all who want those positions of power? Because it's not just positions of power. You have to be such a knothead to think that. Oh, it's a position of power. It's like, sure, but it's a position of overwhelming responsibility. And if you make mistakes, you're done. Right? It's not like you occupy that position of power and everyone does what they're told all the time and your life is easy. It's like, forget about that. People are on your case to do exactly the right thing all the time, 100% of the time. And maybe you want that, and maybe you don't. So the, what, I don't know what people think, is these people are all sitting in their offices with their like, feet up on the desk, smoking cigars and oppressing the world. It's like, that isn't how it works. Those people, they work flat out all the time. So, what is it you want to tell old Dave? You're fired. <laughs> you come again? Mr. Addison. The City of Angels Investigation Company is wholly owned by me and my company, Matt Hayes, Inc. I've suffered some recent financial reverses, and that coupled with the fact that this company has registered significant losses during all of its three years of operation forces me to close its doors Fire. immediately. I expect all expense accounts and credit cards maintained in the company name to be surrendered to me or my representatives, 
and I will expect the prompt return of all company cars. The company car? My company car? The Porsche? Both of them? Real estate agents are already looking for someone to sublet this space, so the sooner you tell your employees, obviously, the better it'll be for everyone. Naturally, we'll honor whatever severance agreements might have been negotiated into any individual's contract, and of course, there will be an additional two weeks' pay for any employee who isn't covered by a severance. Are you getting all this, Mr. Addison? Absolutely, every word. This isn't easy for me either. I don't enjoy putting people out of work. Well, if you'll excuse me, I believe I've finished my business. You know what's really amazing? From the TV commercials and posters and billboards and all that stuff, you never guess what a cold bitch you are. Hey, let's get together and do this again sometime, huh? What were the circumstances? What was the intellectual journey that led you to reject Marx? Well, it was not, not taking Milton Friedman's course. I was a Marxist when I went into Milton Friedman's course. I was a Marxist when I came out. You are just one tough Marxist. Anybody <laughs> can resist Milton. So what happened, Tom? I went to work for the government as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a summer intern in economics. And seeing the thinking or lack of thinking that was going on in the government, I realized the government is not where it's at. So when you... This ties back to the notion of empiricism. When you actually bumped up against the reality yes. of the professional intellectual caste attempting to rearrange the lives of millions of people across this republic, you said to yourself, it's mediocre, it's second row. What was it that, that you said? It was truly unthinking. It was also something else. That the Labor Department had its own institutional interests. I was interested, for example, in whether the minimum wage law caused unemployment. Uh, and I, as I tried to come up with ways of testing that, I realized that the people in the Labor Department saw that as a threat. I mean, they were appalled as I, as I gave some ways we might try to test this. Because they had no desire to test the minimum wage law, which provided one-third of the funding for the U.S. Department of Labor. I see. Uh, and so you re once you say the government agencies have their own institutional interests, so don't look for them to serve the interests of other. I mean, to me, the question is, are, are all these uh, teenage kids going to go out, go without jobs and end up on the street and in crime and all the rest of it? That was not their top priority. And I realized it was ne it other people's well-being would never be the priority of politicians and bureaucrats. That was economist Thomas Sowell speaking to Peter Robinson on his Uncommon Knowledge program back on May 9, 2012. Sadly, I find myself forced to agree with his last comment, on which I will elaborate shortly, but not before reminding everyone that you are listening to Just Right Broadcasting around the world and online. And I'd like to take an extra moment today to thank all of our financial supporters, past and present, who have made it possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. If you're wondering what we do with the money that we do receive, here's what happens to it. Every penny of every donation we receive goes into two general areas of expenditure. One, equipment like microphones, computers, hard drives, video cameras, office space, product distribution, websites, etc. And two, promotion and advertising, all geared to expanding the audience of this show just right. And that includes buying broadcast time. And thank you once again to Paul Lambert, our donor who has bought our time on two shortwave stations. 
and advertising promotions, including Facebook advertising that is done in the form of boosts and other things. To give you some idea of how this strategy is playing out, I can only cite with accuracy our own Just Right website statistics, which very briefly have revealed the following. Bearing in mind that we produce, on average, four new episodes of Just Right each month, here are some of the facts our online stats package has been showing us. In January 2016, unique visitors to our site totaled 4,767 people, and that's in the month, and continued to steadily increase in each and every month in the year until in January 2017, unique visitors to our site now ran at 12,766, a tripling of monthly visitors, and again, with steady and unaltering increases in each and every month, which we're still experiencing. In February of this year, unique visitors increased to just marginally over January to a total of 13,000, and then in March, that number jumped to 17,349, and it appears that this month of April will exceed that number by the time the month finishes off. We now measure our online download shows in terms of terabytes, each terabyte being, of course, 1,000 gigabytes. And for the first 14 weeks of this year, that bandwidth totaled 2.6 terabytes as compared to the total for last year of 4.7 for 12 months. So you can see an incredible growth going on here. Daily visits to our site in January 2016 were about 700 to 800 a day. Today, they're not less than 2,500 a day, a day. So if you are a fan of Just Right and would like to see this show increasingly distributed to more and more listeners around the world, the more funds we have to effectively reach new markets, the greater our audience will grow, and with that, our influence in the public arena. So there you go, for what it's worth, and if you do find that to be of some worth to you, be sure to visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support, and while you're there, sample some of our timeless past broadcasts, all archived for the listening enjoyment of the audience around the world. You know, on past broadcasts of this show, I've referred to efforts on the part of politicians to eliminate poverty when they're really falling into the poverty trap. It's a political trap. Despite political poverty programs, the real poor remain with us, grow, and are unattended to, and for very understandable political reasons. Because people in demonstrable need do not constitute a voting majority. And that's pretty much why they're never targeted for legitimate government assistance and why such assistance is so difficult for them to get. You see it all the time. You, you know, you see some of these health care issues. Somebody has a very, very serious and rare debilitating condition or disease that can be addressed by proper funding, and, and it's simply unavailable. But apparently there's money for a billion-dollar monument called Rapid Transit and for instituting guaranteed minimum income programs to people who aren't really needing it. You know, you can tell those guaranteed minimum income programs are being held in cities where the, the government can buy the most votes going in the next year's provincial election. All our politicians are pretending to be humanitarians as they rob us blind with high electricity rates, the highest car insurance rates in Canada, carbon, carbon taxes, and a never-ending set of burdens that are the price of their humanitarianism. Isabel Patterson, who wrote The God of the Machine back in the 1930s, offered a, a clear 
explanation of the motivation that underlies political efforts to end poverty and to generously put more money into the hands of voters. You know, when it comes to minimum wage laws, which are supposed to elevate everyone's standard of living, they are either destructive to production and jobs or have no effect at all, which is why they are and always have been unnecessary and counterproductive. Every individual has his own minimum wage standard, and it is always those who fall below meeting the standards set by governments of an ever-increasing minimum wage who suffer the most by it. They end up unemployed and then have to be subject to, well, they'll give them a guaranteed minimum, uh, in, guaranteed income. You know, this one thing demands the next. Now, longtime listeners to the show will have heard me quote parts of this before, and it is from The God of the Machine by Isabel Patterson. And she pretty well puts it in a nutshell. Quote, the lust for power is most easily disguised under humanitarian or philanthropic motives. It appears naturally to people who feel a sentimental uneasiness for the misfortunes of others, mixed with the craving for unearned praise, and most especially if they are non-productive. The double gratification of personal wants and of power through quote-unquote doing good is innocently stipulated. But this naive self-glorification turns to positive hatred of any suggestion of persons helping themselves by their own individual efforts, by the non-political means which imply no power over others, no compulsory apparatus. The hatred has a deep motive back of it, for it is true that nothing but the political means will yield unearned public adulation. Quote, the mold is set, she wrote, to preclude variation or change. They are static societies, but a static society is impossible. The principle of social harmony is liberty and the rights of the individual, advised Patterson. And end quote. The nature of man is to be productive, and this is about survival, the quality of life. We are the only species on the planet that has been burdened with this necessity, the, necess the necessity to be productive. A necessity born of knowledge, knowledge that we do not have to live like animals or at the savage mercy of nature. And in the absence of knowledge, a very few number of human beings, which speaks to Price's law, would be able to survive on the planet as they have in the past, completely dependent upon their immediate environment and the potential food supply that that environment provides. Now, effort is the great inhibitor. You know, it requires energy in the form of physical action, thought, and focused concentration. It is related to motivation, that phenomenon discussed by Jordan Peterson. Energy expended through human effort is what ultimately drives economies and creates wealth. It also creates values and morality. You'd be amazed by what some people will do to avoid such effort. People who we say, quote, want something for nothing are really people who want to avoid the effort otherwise required to achieve their own goals, objects, wants, or ambitions. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean they're aggressively or illegally seeking to gain some unearned benefit at the expense of others, not consciously or knowingly at least, that when a politician comes along and promises to help a business to you know, upgrade or retool or subsidize labor costs, or when politicians promise family benefits in the form of checks, tax credits, deductions, and a whole host of other ways to bribe voters with their own money, well then sadly, the average voter turns out to be a looter, no different than the politicians he elects, and especially if he keeps electing the same politicians. 
in grasping for what they believe to be a personal benefit, you know, they bring everyone down to a less civilized way of living. Nature dictates that the individual who created something with his or her own her, her effort has a natural right to the product of that effort. Now, various historical expressions of the sentiment have been called, you know, like natural law or a natural right. But more significant, significant is the corollary to that point, that those who extended no effort with regards to creating something do not have any right to that something they took no part in producing, and that includes another person's wealth. So, we have a choice. Human beings can either acknowledge that right or violate it. Now, because we've elaborated on those very points so many times on past broadcasts, I thought that today we could, again, take a closer look at, at, at an economic issue that's rarely discussed in the context we're about to explore. Let us return our attention to a contentious dimension of economic activity that involves the ever-popular ever subject of women in the workplace and of so-called sexual and gender roles in the economy. Now, this is an issue we've heard Jordan Peterson previously address, but of course, the issue has many dimensions that affect human behavior, which are among the real driving forces behind economics and success and prosperity that we rarely hear discussed. So, from mythology and symbolism to the reality of the market and workplace, here again is Dr. Jordan Peterson. This picture, this is a picture of Venus, the goddess of love, right? And so I cut this picture out of a larger picture, and it's Venus manifesting herself in a transcendent space in the sky, in the same way that Christ did in the previous representation. And she has rays coming off her, and there's all these men who are knights kneeling in front of the image. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that men use the image of female perfection to motivate themselves. And that's exactly right. That's precisely what they do. You see that in the Tom Sawyer story. So Tom Sawyer is about 12 years old, and he's still hanging around with his friends, like Huck Finn. And this girl moves across the street, Becky, and she comes out, and he's struck by her for the first time in his life. Something's changed. And the first thing he does is hop up on a picket fence and show off and balance in front of her. And he's saying, well, look at me, look at me. I'm He's like the male bowerbird building something beautiful so the female will approve of it. And it's, it's motivation. You know, and that's something that I think modern women don't really understand about men. They don't understand that, at least to the degree that males are uncorrupted and, and not better because of being rejected, they're doing everything they can to kneel before the eternal image of the feminine. Hello. Hello. Wow. My name is David Addison, and your name Maddie is Hayes. Maddie Hayes, and don't I know you? No, I don't think we've met. Nah, wait a second, can't fool me. The eyes don't lie, not these babies, photographic. See something once that's locked in there forever. Really? I didn't notice anything locked in there. No, no, I'm changing the subject, you're looking at a bloodhound. Once that's I'm on to something... That's all well and good, Mr. I'll Addison, get but it, that's I'll not... I'll get it, All right, you might have seen my picture somewhere. I knew it. No flies on you. Nope, there certainly aren't. Whatever that means. Now then, when I came... What are we talking, late 70s? Me? The year's a little fuzzy for me, but I will bet the house that you were a Miss March. A Miss what? Miss March. A Playmate of the Month? What, about 1976? I can see the whole layout in my head. You like jazz, your favorite movie was Jonathan Livingston Seagull, you wanted to help underprivileged kids. Am I right or am I right? I mean, I can see the whole layout in my head. 
And if you don't mind me saying so, you are even more beautiful now. Here, in my office, almost a decade later. Wow. So... Listen, bub. Knock that high school locker room grin off your face or I'll knock it off for you. I'm not Miss March, Miss May, or Miss anything else. For your information, I am Ms. Madeline Hayes, and I own this dump. Madeline Hayes? Madeline Hayes? You're Maddie Hayes? The Maddie Hayes? The Blue Moon Girl? Blue Moon Shampoo? Sure, Blue Moon Shampoo. The only shampoo with milk, honey, and a tablespoon, tablespoon of moonbeams in every bottle. bottle. Sure, you're her? That's you? I knew I'd seen you. God, I gotta tell you, I love you. I mean, I, I have always loved you. Really, truly, nothing personal. drinking game? Oh, well, now, well, now, we'll never win. You always play the drinking game. <laughs> Not the drinking game, a drinking game. To be fair, good at both. <laughs> What's the game? All right, it's called Never Have I Ever. The rules are simple. Someone says something they've never done, but if you have done it, you take a drink. I've never played that before. Well, okay, now, wait, have we started? Do I drink? What is happening? Okay, just... <laughs> Calm down, I'll go first. Okay, right, let's see. Never have I ever... She's trying to think of something she's never done before. This could take a while. Very funny. Okay, never have I ever... Yeah, you know what? Let's just circle back. Okay, I'll go. Never have I ever been arrested. So I drink. No, it's only if you've done it. Got it. I can't believe you've been arrested. I can't believe Penny hasn't. This game's dangerous. I could get you in trouble. How? Well, never have I ever used Sheldon's toothbrush to clean the sink. Fine, is that how you want to play this? All right. Never have I ever come up with a nickname for my own genitals. Never should have told you about Alvin and the Chipmunks. All right, my turn. Um, oh, I know. Never have I ever kept a secret bank account because I think my wife can't handle money. <laughs> Did I win? I feel like I won. I can't believe this. You realize I make more money than you. Yeah, I, don't, I know, but this isn't a big deal. It's just a little savings I put aside. We're married. We're supposed to share everything. You mean, like, your massive credit card debt? I'm calling it I won. <laughs> well, never have I ever had a bank account large enough to hide from anyone. <laughs> could you just hear the pin drop when the money secrets were brought up? You know, you could tell by the audience reaction to Sheldon's winning contribution to the game that this is a well-understood sore spot between spouses and, and, and for, for good reason. Never have I ever kept a secret bank account because I think my wife can't handle money. <laughs> now, now consider the implications of that statement on a collective scale. How can honest 
law-abiding citizens protect their earnings from a government that cannot handle money and that does not even take into consideration the economic impact on those whose money it is. I think, you know, that's somehow how the husband feels in this case. You know, we're married. We should have to share everything. Well, this is exactly the ideology of socialism with respect to the citizenry. We're all married to each other, aren't we? And we all have to share everything, like, like the massive credit card debt run, run, by our, run up by our governments. So I want to know how I get a divorce. <laughs> Do I have to file a sexual harassment suit, or, or would that be a financial harassment suit? I don't know. Never has anyone been allowed to have a secret bank account when the government can't handle its money. <laughs> There's a big difference, you know, in attitudes about money between earners and spenders, especially when they're two different people or departments or organizations. And that's part of the problem I think we have in the municipalities in Ontario. They abolished all their boards of control, and now they're out of control. How interesting that the picture of Venus, as described by Jordan Peterson, quote, has rays coming off her with knights kneeling in front of the image. And the key word here is image, not the reality to which he assigns motivation. Interesting. Now, how coincidental <laughs> that the image to which Bruce Willis as David Addison and Sybil Shepherd as Maddie Hayes, you know, were referring to was called moonbeam, as if to suggest beams of light again, rays of light, as, you know, as if it were emanating from the subject. But I thought it was really funny when, when Willis goes, and I love you, <laughs> really, truly, but nothing personal. <laughs> and there you have it, the precise phenomenon to which Peterson was referring. And of course, as those who've experienced the TV series Moonlighting, that was the starting point of his love and hers for each other, as each of them continually denied it to themselves and each other for the series. Or maybe they were just listening to the advice of employment lawyer Howard Levitt, whose commentary in the Financial Post of April 22nd advised, and this is the headline, don't even think about it. <laughs> and Levitt writes, I quote, The recent news of ingrained sexual harassment at Fox and Uber, the high-profile lawsuit against Gian Gomeshi, and complaints about the treatment of women in the military have brought the issue to the forefront of, of Canadian consciousness. But it wasn't that long ago that many Canadians met partners, not on the internet, but at work. Inter-office affairs were common, but often disrupt disruptive when they failed. I recommend that my clients prohibit any dating between superiors and subordinates. Even if it is initially consensual, when the relationship ends, the subordinate might claim sexual harassment. That alone is sufficient reason for such a policy. I have known rejected parties to make such claims in bad faith, and the sincerity of the allegation can be difficult to establish. The problem is best avoided by prohibiting it in the first instance. End quote. Well, the balance of his article is about a nightmare situation that resulted in a particular corporation cited. In the case cited, a male employer who had developed a close relationship with a female employee asked her if she would like to date or establish a further romantic relationship. And she rejected his advance, and he reacted responsibly and said fine, and carried on. After her rejection of moving forward with a closer relationship with the male employer, he no longer pursued the romantic relationship and only communicated with her about official business matters and things around the office. But guess what? <laughs> she filed a complaint with the Human Rights Commission, and she won. You'll never guess why. 
because the male employer no longer continued his relationship with her on the same basis he had before her rejection. And I quote from Levitt's article, quote, Many might think that their restricting their relationship to business was precisely what he should have done. But that would be wrong. The tribunal noted that the decrease in access to each other in face-to-face -face supervision and consultation on business matters was retaliatory. Even though he attempted, after her complaint, to increase those business interactions, the nature and quality was not as comfortable or effortless as it was before. But doing otherwise would have also carried a risk. This case accentuates the need for employers to absolutely prohibit superior-subordinate workplace relationships, end quote. Now, the female employee was awarded by a Human Rights Commission damages, quote, for injury to her dignity resulting from the male's change in behavior following her rejection of, 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 his, of, her advance, of his advance. She also recovered her income loss of over $50,000, a loss, by the way, caused by her own resignation, which she blamed on the loss of the personal friendship that she had with her former employer. This is just stunning. A woman scorn, you know, as a woman who has a valid human rights complaint. What a sad world we're living in. By the way, the subject of Playboy magazine came up in the Bruce Willis clip there. And I don't know if you know, but Playboy magazine has reinstituted the Playboy centerfold after foolishly abandoning its own identity in some kind of attempt to deny what sells the magazine. You may recall I protested at the time on cultural grounds, of course. It turns out I called it right. Sexual images as an ideal are a motivation, and they motivate men to buy Playboy magazine. And, you know, then they read the articles. <laughs> but don't for a moment think that this lets women off the motivational, motivational hook regarding the female ideal. Women use the image of female perfection to motivate themselves, too. Just check out the covers of the women's magazines in the grocery stores and variety stores. What does that tell you? Deny it all you want. Try all of the social engineering you want to force your denial on others. But these forces in human nature will never change as long as we're able to call ourselves human beings. You know, is it any wonder that a guy like Jordan Peterson should have gotten himself into, you know, the kind of trouble he did with the authorities over a ridiculous issue of gender? Coincidence? One thing for sure, when it comes to money and finances, you'll often see stats showing that they rank above affairs and infidelity as the reason married couples split from each other. It's not that money matters more than love. It's just that people love money more than a bad relationship. And love and hate, of course, are two sides of the same coin of valuation, and both are always in play. And like Thomas Sowell explained, it's a trade-off. I'll leave you with that thought while I take this closing moment to thank you one and all for trading an hour of your time to be with us here on Just Right. And please do join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bed clothes, everything will be Okay, you have every right to be mad. And what you said is true. You do make more money than me. So I had no right to do what I did. And I'm so sorry. I hope you can forgive me. How long have you had this secret account? A couple years, but I just put a few bucks aside every month for emergencies. Well, how much you got in there? 
$6,427. once my Nana's birthday check gets here. Oh my God, Leonard, do you know what I could do with that kind of money? No, I do, and that's why I hate it. <laughs>